Grab your Bible and turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to finish up chapter 4 this morning. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is, or there are, a few left there um, on the table. Go ahead and take that. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, feel free to take that with you. Um, that is our gift to you, and, and you can use that if we need to replenish. So we will, we will soon. So we're in James chapter 4 this morning. We're going to read verses 13 through 17 together in our time together. But as we've kind of processed through the book of James, we've seen several things uh, taking place that James is writing to his first century readers. A handful of things that, that he is communicating uh, to them. All sort of under the umbrella of the understanding that we're keeping eternity in focus. This is a primary theme in the New Testament, one that is of utmost importance for us as we study the New Testament, as we study the Bible as a whole, keeping in focus what, what is to come and not necessarily what is here. Like what Kimmy said to us this morning, that, that when trials come, when persecution comes, when hardship comes, we look through it to eternity. We don't try to circumvent, but we look through it into what God has promised us in Christ Jesus. So as we've looked through the book of James then, um, we've seen a few things playing themselves out throughout the course of the entire book. James, one of the first thing is that James is uh, communicating to his readers who are undergoing some significant social and economic pressure and persecution in their time, being Jews spread across uh, the Mediterranean region. They were undergoing this pressure as those who were following Jesus, but James says, uh, undergo that those trials, undergo that persecution um, with eternity in focus. Look through them, uh, not necessarily fixate on them. And then having that view of trials is, is godly wisdom, right? Having a view that sees through trials to eternity is what it means to fixate, to focus on godly wisdom, and then treat the here and now um, differently. If you treat the here and now as primary, as the only thing that there is, then you are subscribing to worldly wisdom. And then James, throughout the course of the book, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up, uh, well, we still have a few weeks left, but next week we're going to focus a little bit on this understanding, this theme that we see recurring throughout the course of the book, and that the poor, the downcast, those who, are, those who are marginalized in society are the ones that the kingdom favors. Because as they look at their world, they don't see much. There's not much going on. There's not much material. There's not much to be excited about. And so they can, they can look more clearly at eternity because they don't have the stuff around them clouding their vision of eternity. And so James focuses on that. And then he also communicates that those, those downtrodden, those marginalized, those downcast, those are the ones that the kingdom identifies with also because the, that was us spiritually prior to coming to know Christ. We were marginalized spiritually. We had no hope in this world apart from Jesus Christ. So let's read our text this morning together. Keeping those things in mind, we're going to focus on a couple of those this morning, but keeping those things in mind, let's read together James 4, 13 through 17. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. 
So as we're looking at this, we see we see sort of the heart. Something just dawned on me. This was the first text I preached in, in a preaching class in seminary. That or this is a totally different sermon. That one was probably terrible. Hopefully this one isn't equally as terrible. Okay. Um, so here we go. The, this is kind of the heart of what's going on here. This is the heart of presumption. What lies at the heart of presumption for us as we look at this text? Um, today or tomorrow we go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. There's this idea. So how many of you this morning, how many of you have lunch plans? Anybody have lunch plans? Nobody has them. Okay. Two people have lunch plans. I don't believe you. I don't believe any of you. Three people have lunch plans. Okay. Nobody has lunch plans. Nobody's going to go home and heat up a pork chop. We're going to all come to your house. Okay, great. You're all welcome. Come on over. Talk to my wife about that. Later. Um, okay, so maybe you've got something in the crock pot. Really? Nobody? Okay, that's fine. You're probably just because we read this text, you're thinking to yourself, this is a trap, so I'm not going to put it All right. So, okay, so for the sake of argument, all right, you have something in the crock pot, you've got leftovers in the fridge, maybe you're going to go to the bees. That's what I call either Applebee's or Johnny B's. You can take your pick. Um, I've never done that. Okay. Great. If you have lunch plans, great. Um, for often for us though, when we we make plans though, we think about what it's going to look like, right? Um, we think about going to a restaurant. We think about are the are the kids going to be happy? Um, we think about the fact that, uh, is, is our food going to come out in a timely fashion? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be frozen? Is it going to be cooked through? Is it going to be cooked the way that we like it? You're going to go home, you're going to pull that pork chop out of the fridge, you're going to open up the, the Tupperware. Is there, is there mold on it? Uh, <laughs> hopefully not. Um, and, and maybe if you're sitting here and the crock pot's going at home, you did remember to turn it on, right? My wife, a couple weeks ago, we were having tacos, and she forgot to put the lid on. And so it was just a blob of taco meat. A, it's good to make plans, right? And I, I think that this text, if we look at this text, first and foremost, as something that is, that is uh, a, a warning against making plans, I think we're missing the point. Because the heart of this text is presumption. Um, who's a planner? Anyone a planner? You're actually going to put your hands in there for this one. Okay. So people, you are a planner. I think it's good to be a planner. I think it's good to be a planner. I actually think there's like a theological reason. I am a planner. I love plans. I love calendars. I love to-do lists. I love everything. Everything's color-coded, tagged, retrievable, consistent. Um, it's like I'm, it's like a big warm blanket that I put on and it's snowing outside. The winds of chaos are blowing and I'm sipping a hot cup of coffee in front of the fireplace. That's what organization feels like to me. It's just very warm. It's very. It's a place where I, I just love. I just love to sit down in the morning and look at my to-do list and say, yes, knock it out. Let's do it. And it, the question is, is that wrong? According to this text, no. It's not, it's not wrong. And I think, again, I think there's this theological argument for organization. I really do. I think that there's a theological argument. God is an ordered God. God ordered the universe. He, everything is like my head, my arm is here and not here this morning because of what God got designed, right? Like that's the way that, that he works. He knit this universe together in the way that he wanted it. He didn't miss a stitch. He didn't mess up everything that is the way that it is because God ordered it and it is exactly the way that he intended it. Uh, this is a theme in scripture, order set against chaos, right? Order set against chaos. Sin is chaos. It's this 
disordering of what God has intended for us, what God intended creation to be. So for us personally as people, we were created for relationship with God. We were made to live in harmony with God, live on this earth and live in harmony with Him. We were made to glorify Him. But sin, the chaos of sin, breaks that. It breaks that order. Um, it sets us into a place where God did not necessarily intend us to be. But God, as who he is, we sang about God's holiness this morning. God is set apart. He is, he is set apart. He remains ordered. He sees his purposes, and he is accomplishing them with perfect efficiency. Um, a week ago, uh, we, some of us, we installed a new carpet in our community room at, at, our, at the building. Um, and we were thinking through that, and we, we, uh, we had carpet squares, and Britta's dad did it for us, and that was wonderful because I had no idea what was going on. Um, but there's these carpet squares, and we, we actually we came to the end, and we looked at it, and we had very little waste. There was very little waste left around. I don't know if you've ever done floor, but you get up against the walls, and you gotta, you're going to have to cut like a little bit off. We had very little waste. Um, and in God's divine sovereignty, there is no waste. If God was installing carpet squares in that room, there would be zero waste. They would, he would get the square footage exactly right, and he would put them all down, and they would all fit perfectly, and that's the way that they would be. Um, the carpet that God is laying, or has laid, needs no trimming. It fits perfectly. And so, in that, I believe, I'm making an argument here to you, I, in that, I believe that we are called to reflect God in his order. And what he has divinely ordered us to do, I think that we are called to do that. Um, Proverbs 24, 27 says this. Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for your house in the field, and after that, build your house. That sounds like planning. That sounds like order. It sounds like, a, a, it, sounds like it is communicating to us, what is wisdom? Wisdom is getting everything prepared and then, and then executing the task before you have it. Build a house. If you build a house, it's you pour a foundation. It's it's that simple. It's it's really simple. You can't build a house without first laying the the groundwork. Um, and here here's where this is important. As you can look at Proverbs twenty eight two, it says this. The 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 author writes this. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Um, in the message, which is a which is a paraphrase of this uh, of the Bible, in the message it says this, and I think it captures the essence of what the the uh, the, the the author of Proverbs is this proverb is communicating. It says for that first section there, when a land transgresses, that first section it says this: when a country is in chaos, when a country is in chaos, and this this isn't what this isn't this isn't an, it's not an anti-democratic statement. What it is, is the author is communicating a lack of order, right? The head, if the head is divided, if the head is divided, then, then there will be no uh, clear direction for the body. The body will be in chaos, right? If the leadership is in disorder, then, then the body or the, the, the country, the, the land will be in chaos. If the head is of one understanding, if the head is of a, one knowledge, then, then the body has direction. The body has purpose. Therefore, coming out of this, as you read this proverb, you think to yourself, okay, what does this mean? If you are in Christ, our, order, our lives are ordered within the head, which is Christ. By the head, which is Christ. Our direction, clearly laid out in Scripture, to obey all that He commands us. 
What is our purpose? It is to bring Him glory and to enjoy Him. That's what this proverb is talking about. And understanding that if you have a fixed place that you look at, if you have a fixed place to go, um, your life will be ordered. And maybe, okay, so two types of people then. Maybe you're saying this morning, I'm not organized at all. Maybe you didn't put your hand up, and that wasn't just because you were intimidated to put your hand up. You're actually not organized at all. Um, I would encourage you to discipline yourself. I would encourage you that in that there's direction uh, for the reasons that, or to implement some kind of direction in your life for the reason that I say that God is an ordered God. You're created in His image. You're called to reflect Him in that. Um, if you're like, I don't know where to start, I would say that there's a bunch of wonderful resources here in this body. This is why we exist together. If you see someone put your hand up and you're like, I'm not organized, just Humble yourself and go over to that person and say, "Hey, can you help me get organized?" That's fine. That's part of what we, what part of what it is to be together um, as the body. Um, I can even think of probably a few people here in this congregation who would who would be willing to geek out with you or, over organization for like 48 hours straight. Probably. I, I may or may not be one. And. Okay, so even if this even has you feeling overwhelmed or discouraged, just, just put your mind at ease. This is the struggle to reflect God in His being ordered exists. Those of us who are falling into that organization camp struggle with almost the exact opposite, maybe even worse. We struggle to make that our God, right? Like I said, that I wrap myself in this blanket, like I'm finding comfort, I'm finding satisfaction there, and I'm finding satisfaction in a place that, that isn't. Isn't God. So maybe maybe that's who you are. Then maybe that second type of person where you where you say, "Boy, I am organized. I have a planner. Great. Reflect God in it." But again, don't allow it to be your God. You ask yourself, "How does that happen? How does it happen where I allow something like this to be my God um, by finding comfort and satisfaction in this organization?" Right. First, um, how do you know if organization and planning are your God? You just ask yourself, "How do we respond when my organization when my planning, when my, when my, uh, my to-do list gets disrupted? How do I respond in that, in that instance? If it is with frustration or, or anger, it's probably because organization, your plans, your preparations are your God. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many of the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So James here is writing to someone who is making plans, right? He's writing to someone who is making plans. And at the heart of this, it's not so much if you're like, well, I'm not a planner, so this doesn't apply to me. The heart of it is really uh, centered around presumption. Look at verse 13. Come down to you, say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. If you'll think back a few chapters in James, we're talking about speech and what comes out of a person's mouth. How is it that, what, what comes out of a person's mouth and where does that originate? It originates in the heart, right? Jesus says very clearly, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's in the heart of the person making this statement in verse 13? Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's in the heart? What's going on there? The heart of that is presumption. It's acting as though tomorrow's outcomes are controlled entirely by you. It's like, it's saying, what, what's going to come tomorrow, I have control over uh, making that come about. And then if you look at verse 14, yet you do not, this is James just applying the, the anecdote here. If you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a long time 
and then vanishes. And this is the understanding then that we should have. This is how we should approach planning, how we should approach things in our world, is understanding there are a lot of things outside of our control. This is not a difficult argument to follow. James isn't really giving us a... a this is not veiled in any kind of way. If you presume, then what you should do is understand that your life, it is a mist that appears for a... or vapor, maybe your Bible says, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And really, honestly, if we consider that, um, this is pretty generous. Um, if you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Um, I don't know what's going to happen for the rest of my day, right? Like, I, I kind of do, but I don't. I won't. I'm going to go home, I'm going to try and build a bookshelf, and I'm going to, uh, and I'm going to eat some lunch, and I'm going to do whatever, whatever. Just pick an activity. Um, but if I go into the if I go into the fridge and I open up the Tupperware container and the pork chop is moldy, then my plan has been disrupted. Um, or if I'm going to go to a restaurant, my food comes out cold or undercooked, or after an acceptable amount of time has passed that I deem acceptable, or maybe the kids lose it at the restaurant. Um, we just don't know. We just don't know what's going to impact what's going on in our day. And so, why don't you know what tomorrow or later today will bring? Um, because, how James argues it, question, what is your life? Um, he says it is a, answers his own question, it is a mist. And a mist appears for a little time, and then it's gone. So I looked up mist, because I was wondering, like a meteorological thing, right? Like, what is a mist? Um, I didn't really know how it differed from fog, so mist is sort of, Fog's weak cousin. It's just like this little. It's it's not it's not nearly as impactful, right? Fog is fog can disrupt your travel. Can disrupt your direction. Mist is like an afterthought. You're like driving for 600 miles. You're saying, is it misting? Yeah, I think it's been misting the whole way. <laughs> okay. So James compares our life, right, as the antidote for presumption. James controls com, compares our life to the, the, the least impactful meteorological event that could possibly exist. Like, you should say, nothing, it's just nothing. Your life is, is it is a mist. And then if we look then in verse 15, instead you ought to say, right, this is, this is, the, this is instead of presuming speech, this is speech that is uh, subject to the will of God, right? Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I've heard a lot of people use this verse and just tack on God willing or Lord willing at the end of every sentence. That's not helping either. That's not, it's not, it's not <coughs> representing a heart change here. It's not representing any kind of, any kind of impact of what it means to, to submit your plans to the Lord. And that's not what James is talking about. Verse 16 then. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And again, if we go back to that question that we asked ourselves, what is in the heart of the person who is making this presumptive statement in verse 13? Um, James lays it out very clearly for us. It is arrogance, right? It is presumption. It is acting as though tomorrow's outcomes are controlled entirely by you. And then verse 16 gets to the heart of what he's talking about um, the arrogance that comes through a statement like this. He says, all such boasting 
is evil. A perspective on the world that says, I'm in control, my needs are primary, I should get what I want when I want it. Um, I, I thought about this in particular quite a bit this week uh, because uh, I found myself growing frustrated just personally when I was cleaning up what seemed to be the, the, the millionth potty problem of the, of the week. Um, I was scrubbing out Paw Patrol on these, I'm sorry for that. I was scrubbing these out, and, 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 and I just, I thought to myself, why am I growing frustrated? Our, our two-year-old, he's, he's, overall, he's really good. He's a, he's a chronoptimist. You know what a chronoptimist is? It's someone who says that, uh, I'll be home in three minutes when you're at Walmart, when it's never taken less than seven. When it's never taken less than seven minutes. That's what a chronoptimist is. Okay. Um, so it's never my plan to be scrubbing out these, these Paw Patrol, but, it, but it, I, I never build it into the day, right, to deal with potty problems. I never, I never, that's never a calendar item. It's never on this new It just never is. Maybe it should be, maybe I'd receive it better if, that, if it was. But today or tomorrow, what James writes, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend there, a year there, trade and make a profit. And what he doesn't say then is scrub out these undies. So, um, and that, that got me thinking about my own arrogance, right? And I spent, I was so, I was so set on getting this out. Rebecca knows on Wednesday, I was just sitting there and I was just like trying to get this thought out. And, and so hopefully this, this all makes sense to you. Um, this points to my own arrogance as I think about what I'm doing in the moment. Do I think that I deserve to do something different? Do I think that I deserve to do something different in that moment? Do I think that the world exists to serve me and my needs and my plans? This is what it means to boast in our arrogance. This is what it means to say, today or tomorrow, we're going to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This is what we talked about a bit last week also. Strife in the church takes place because we think that others should bend over backwards and, and think that they should do what we think that they should do because we elevate our own needs, our own desires, our own pleasures, our own passions above the needs of others. But the standard we should be holding one another to is God's, not ours. So brothers and sisters, the way it looks is to live in obedience. To live in obedience uh, and not to presume. So, so example time. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Maybe, maybe um, I spend a, a small amount of time throughout the course of the day with our kids in the middle of the day. We have a four-year-old, two-year-old, and a month old. Um, so it's not easy, and I sort of get it. I'm sorry for those of you who stay home all the time. Saying, I, I, I sort of get it. Don't pick up the stones. Remember the gospel phrases from comparisons. If I get home from the office and I expect the kids, if I get home, come upstairs from my office, and, and go walk into the house, and if I expect the kids to be quiet while I make that phone call that I need to make, if I expect them to eat their food in a timely fashion and be quiet while they do it, if I expect them to not crush all the Cheerios on their, on their sister's high chair while I turn my back for 10 seconds to warm up her bottle, um, then I'm boasting in my arrogance, and I'll certainly be frustrated. I will certainly be frustrated. My, my world is not the most important thing. My four-year-old, two-year-old, and eight-month-old are not just going to stop what they're doing and say, hold it, Dad, your world is more important than, than what we've got going on here. 
They're not gonna, they're not gonna do that. So the same goes at work. If you go to work during your day and you and, and you think to yourself, you think about these things. The project that you delegated, just behind schedule. That person won't return your phone call, or the boss keeps a last second deadline on you, the end of the quarter numbers look worse than you anticipated. And those things are affecting you in a, in a way um, where you're presuming and you think that you deserve to have those things all go correctly throughout your, throughout your day, then you're boasting in your arrogance. And you certainly will be frustrated. See, we get our days all wrong. We get our days all wrong. Remember that Philippians text we read last week in Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 5 through 7. Well, we read a bigger chunk, but verses 5 through 7 in particular say this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What did Jesus do? What's the only verb there? Jesus emptied himself. And then in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What did Jesus do there? He humbled himself. Anyway, the world tells you, the world tells you, this is worldly wisdom, that you must operate out of a position of strength. That God, but God as demonstrated in Christ, tells you to operate out of a position of weakness. When you feel empty, broken, beat up, dried up, drained, sapped, that's when you are strong because you know that God's grace is displayed in and through you. Now when you feel rested and rejuvenated, excited and positive... Because you know that inevitably you will ascribe that to yourself. When things go well, when I get stuff done, it is me. When things don't get done, it points to God. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about what he called his thorn in the flesh, right? You're familiar with this. So to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to, to, uh, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Are you kidding me, Paul? Are you kidding me? What you're saying, God, why is my life the way that it is? Why do I feel so drained? Why does it seem like nothing ever goes right? And Paul has the audacity to write this. Let's just sum this up. We feel frustrated with our circumstances because of our arrogance. We feel frustrated with our circumstances because of our arrogance. In those moments, we think that we, the way that we envision things going should be taking place. And when we, they do not play out properly, we get frustrated. This is what it means to presume. To say that we are going to go here or there and do this or that. And this will be the outcome. Rather, what James writes to his readers is to understand that all the situations, all the scenarios we find ourselves in throughout the course of our week, we need to acknowledge that no amount of planning, no amount of organizing can bring about the result that we think ought come about. In the moments where things don't go according to plan, our weakness is on display, and in that, God's strength is on display. So I 
can't quite leave this idea yet. How many of you in the last month had a day where nothing that you planned or hoped to accomplish got done? Think about how God views that. Does he view that as a failure? No. Why? Because his way of measuring things is completely different than our way of measuring things. Not only cares about your plans and productivity in as much as it brings him glory. Does that, does that, sound, that sounds harsh. Coming out of my mouth. This is true. You know what always brings God glory? Your satisfaction in Him. Your Christ-likeness. So there are two ways to respond to unplanned circumstances. One is, boy, I didn't get anything done today. I'm a failure. Or, boy, things are going the way that I want them to. What a crummy world we live in. Or, two, I didn't get anything done today. That points my, to my weakness and my total reliance on God. Or things that are going the way that I want them to. Glory be to God. He's a perfect plan. And it looks like it's not quite lining up with mine. I will find satisfaction in him. In the fact that he has promised my good in every circumstance. He has promised to never leave me. He has promised to never forsake me. Consider your miserables then. Those last two responses, those are Christ-like and God-honoring. The first two responses are self-centered and arrogant. Ultimately, you're saying, I'm the highest good. If you, if you say, boy, things, I didn't get things done today. I'm, I'm a failure. Or, boy, things aren't going the way I want them to. What a crummy world we live in. Ultimately, you're saying, I'm the highest good that there is. Therefore, I deserve for my life to be ordered according to my will. I'm just conclude with three thoughts then. What James is communicating here is regarding presumption. So for us, then, what we need to think about is allowing our plans to be subject to God's will. What does that mean? Is it wrong to plan? No, absolutely not. I outlined that. Right. I hope you saw that as we talked about. I think it is important as a reflection of who God is to, uh, to plan. It's not at all wrong. It's wrong to plan out of the understanding that you can control the outcome. Boasting an ability to control the outcome is presumption because you can't control the outcome. And it is arrogance. Allow your plans to be subject to God's will. And again, some of you, what we can't do is go from here and labor over those last two words there, God's will. Because I think these are clearly outlined for us in Scripture. We harp on this all the time. You know what it is, what God's will is. It's to enjoy God. To bring him glory. People are saying, I don't know what that looks like. It looks like allowing your plans to be subject to God's will. What I mean is to know that the satisfaction that we find in, in planning and in, in whatever our world offers us, the satisfaction that we plan that, find there should actually be redirected to God. There's so many things outside of your control that it will rarely look like the way you want it to. And he's going to bring about some Christ-likeness in you, through it, and that's God's will. So what I could have said, but it probably wouldn't have gotten the PowerPoint very well, 
allow your plans to be subject to God's will. What I could have said is, get over it when things don't go the way that you want they or think that they should, because God has a perfect plan to make you more like Jesus, and what you're experiencing is working towards bringing about Christ's likeness is not, opposed, is not opposed to it. It's a little lengthy for the PowerPoint, so... The second thing that it, the first is allow your plans to be subject to God's will. The second thing is to be okay operating out of emptiness. The second thing is to be okay operating out of emptiness. And I can't stress this enough. When you feel like there's nothing left in your world to give, God's power is made perfect in your weakness. And I think then that we take that statement and think that there's going to be some kind of just just amazing outpouring of something that comes out of us, right? I don't think that that's what, what, what Paul writes about when he writes to the Corinthians about the thorn in his flesh. I think what he's literally saying is there's not going to be any perceivable, outward, external, anything that you see happening, but you need to trust in the promise that I have given you that there is something going on inside of you that... I am making you more like Jesus. And that, that may not be readily apparent to you ever in this life. And that's okay. You have to be okay with that. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And I think it's a profoundly unbiblical thought to think that we need to find this place of strength before we, we can place others before ourselves. That's not a condition I don't see as see anywhere. Our place of strength is weakness. Does that make sense in my mind? No. Is it true? Absolutely. That's right. Maybe... Let me just give you a couple of scenarios. Maybe your community group is going to serve some more, but you've had an exhausting week. What if in God, what God's inexhaustible power is to be displayed in your exhaustion? And again, there may be no perceivable outworking of that. Your coworker maybe is going through a messy divorce and needs to talk, but you planned a weekend in Fargo or Bismarck. That's perfect plan, perfectly planned timing is displayed in your lack of understanding of this timing. You've got friends coming for dinner in two, two minutes before they walk in. Your kids are throwing haymakers. Maybe your car won't start. Maybe the internet goes off. Maybe you lose your keys. Maybe you're at work and you're openly slandered. Maybe your parents get cancer. Maybe you get cancer. Get it in your head. God's power is being displayed. Stop lamenting. Rejoice. Stop lamenting in your frustration. Stop boasting in your arrogance and rejoice that God is producing in you something that you can't bring about in yourself. <coughs> Real talk. Your planning is trash. God's planning, His order, His design is perfect. Your preparations, they're, they're meaningless. God's preparations are exceedingly meaningful. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So well, are you going to rest in that? Are you going to rest in something else that you think you can, can conjure? 
as Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself. We're always trying to fill up. We're always trying to operate in strength. There's no joy there. There's no peace there. Because tomorrow you're going to wake up and be just as tired. Your striving won't get you where you need to be. So the admonition that coming out of this is to trust Jesus. He's the one who emptied himself. So that we could become vessels that display God's glory in our own weakness. Jesus, the one who worked perfectly so we could rest. No waste. And then one day, when this all fades away, when this life, when this earth, when all of this goes away, our plans will be perfect. Not because they're something that we think of or dream of. Our plans will be perfect because they're in perfect alignment with what God has for us. There will no longer be a sin barrier. We will have perfect relationship with our Creator and find perfect satisfaction. Let's pray.